So Patty, I thought our episode today, having OB Rawls on your podcast when you're in the payments industry, it's kind of the gold standard of, of gold standard. I mean, yes. I don't know what else to say about that. So we had OB Rawls. We talked about a variety of, of subjects, um, primarily about challenges that are faced by those in our industry that are trying to grow an organization. Um, right. These are challenges that cut across a lot of different types of organizations, but Obi talks about his experience working as now as an advisor, a board member, an investor, and mm-hmm. you know how he sees the industry. So a lot of just super practical advice, I feel like, you know, to, to discuss. Um, now I don't do a questions from the field in this one because we had a little bit of a longer conversation with OB Rawls and then you and I kind of bantered back and forth a bit about this. So talk about the insider's report. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a continuation of the saga on uh, credit card routing and, uh, you know, attempts to, to regulate that, uh, what's happened so far and, um, what the future portends. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, this episode is brought to you by NMI. That's NMI.com. Um, James, are you ready to start? Let's go. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Well, today, James and I are joined by our dear friend, Obi Rawls. Uh, he's going to discuss uh, building a payments organization or any organization for that matter. And then what to do when you hit a a wall in your barrier to growth. I think OB is really perfectly suited for this because as uh, many know, OB has been in this, this business for many, many years, um, longer longer than me. And I've been in this business for many, many years. Uh, these days, he is the uh, chief honcho at Jerobom Advisory Services. And uh, OB, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. Um, I'm wondering, you know, before we dive into everything, I'd love for you to share with our audience, especially for people who may not know you or your history, uh, your journey in the payments industry and what kind of work you're doing today. Okay, thanks, Patty. Um, And thanks, James, for having me on the show today. Um, I started my career early on in banking. I spent 18 years at at Bank of America doing a, a lot of different things. And my last job there was to run the merchant services company. Right. You know, from from there, I, I ventured into you know more processing roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran a I ran a couple of joint ventures for First Data. One with with Bank of America, and then the second one was Lloyd's Bank in the UK. Right. And so I, I lived over there, and when I came back from from the UK, I spent three years in healthcare. It's the most confusing time Ooh. of my life, you know, but me and I love that. You, know, you almost lost guy. your health in healthcare, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was interesting, but we built a small healthcare technology company and, you know, eventually transitioned it. And from there, I, I came back to First Data. Uh, I ran uh, the task uh, hardware business for right. First Data. In fact, I think that's uh, when we first met. Yeah, uh, we probably met before that. Might I have been, yeah. But I do remember in interviewing. Yeah, yeah, I do I remember at, that, yeah. I was mm-hmm. at Hypercom for a while. Right. And with Hypercom, I moved and, and back and lived in the UK again. And so when I, I went to First Data, I did a lot of different things in the, the seven years there. And I was one of um, 200 people that got to invest alongside KKR in, the, uh-huh. um, in that venture. And so... I stayed, you know, with them until we did a transaction and went public again. And I left there and went to uh, iPayment, which was a, right. a troubled, a large, it's the largest ISO in the U.S. at the time, but very troubled, you know, both um, challenged morally, ethically, financially, you know. But we were we were able to, in a short amount of time, you know, take a, a business that had good bones and turn it into something that we were able to sell to PaySafe. Mm-hmm. So after that, I stayed at PaySafe for a couple of years and ran global acquiring for them. And I retired at the end of um, June 2020. Wow, I didn't realize it's been almost two years since you retired. Um, time flies. Time flies. And you're li- it looks like you're living the life of Riley, as they say. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm having a good time, Patty, because... You know, I kind of direct my future now, sort mm-hmm. of like you and James do, and mm-hmm. it's it's fun. I was I was good, uh, I'm not being boastful, but 
proud. You know, I worked well in large companies. You did. You did very well. I I was very impressed with everything you were doing. And now now I'm I'm doing some in, some investments in the the fintech and the the payment space. Uh, and I'm on a, a few boards of companies that are run by or owned by private equity or hedge funds. Mm-hmm. And um, I have some advisory business where I help uh, payment companies uh, when they hit walls. And and that's I think that's what we'll talk about yes, a yes. lot today. Mm-hmm. You know, what's really what's really challenging for a lot of companies is they may build up a five, 10, $15 million EBITDA business. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they can't work any harder. They can't work any smarter. They can't work any longer. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. you know, they've learned how to do what they're doing you know, right. by themselves. And so really, you know, what I do is help them to think bigger. And, you know, that's, that's a challenge for all of us, right? Is, right, sure thinking large enough, making sure that we understand all of our options. Because a lot of times you're faced with a dilemma and you say, God, I even got to do this or this. But right. if you think about it, there are multiple options. They they have different financial values if you'll figure it out. So my time spent is, is helping these smaller companies learn how to grow and continue their path of success. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of I, I was thinking about that because, you know, it's, I think all of us will agree this is an industry where there's plenty of opportunity. Um, but it's also an industry where a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes and continue to make mistakes, um, particularly when you're, you know, a small ISO trying to grow, as you say, um, you know, or some of the bigger, bigger ISOs like you were talking about iPayment. And I'm wondering um what are some of the, the the real problems? I mean, can you can you can you put a an identifier on some of the problems that that come in early on that um, constrain a business from um, so, scaling? Yeah, I can I can put it in one word, and, and we can break it down and talk about it. But it's generally concerning focus, Patty. It's mm-hmm. it's people try to do too much. You know, mm-hmm. they don't they don't focus on their path. They don't focus on what they're good at. You know, they they I see a lot of agents trying to be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. I've watched over the years agents worry about five dollars in the cost of a terminal. Right. And so why would they call three resale companies trying to get the best price for a terminal? Pick mm-hmm. something they like. They know how to sell deploy service and then go go sell it because the real money's made in the recurring revenue right that we we earn on residuals so it's yeah. it's all a matter of of focus you yeah know? you know james and i've talked a lot about that i think you know on the, on the podcast that the whole idea of focus is is so critical because and i think what you're saying is is people sort of get caught up in the in the day-to-day sort of grind Without keeping their sort of you know eye on the prize, is that is that a good good way to um, summarize? Look, it's so easy to do, Patty. I mean, mm-hmm. we we all um, we all get caught up in in certain things. Sometimes circular paths and bad habits, and they're they're hard to break. But this may this may sound simple, but keeping your eye on the prize, understand what you're trying to do every day. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a I'm an agent. I'm a small ISO. I want to grow my business. And so how do I grow my business? I do it two ways. I sell more clients and I keep the clients I have. You know, and a- along with that comes a whole lot of things, you know, that right, sure. have to deal with values and ethics and behaviors. Right. But Which are critically have- important, of course, as well. But yeah, so 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 I think OB as we as we dig into this a little bit. I want to start with the smallest organizations in our in our industry, and I want to talk about kind of the first wall that, that I see them hitting and get your advice on this. So as we talk about the individual agent or very small ISO, uh, you know, they've got 150 merchants, 200 merchants, and they get to the point, you mentioned it earlier, where they can't work any harder, they can't work any smarter. Well, a lot of them could work harder, but they don't want to. And yeah. right. But at any rate, they don't want to work any harder. They They can't work much smarter. 
And they're at that point where it's like, okay, something's got to give here. And they're maybe a little nervous to add that first W-2 employee, you know, to pay. maybe they have a couple of sub agents, but they don't have an actual W-2 employee. What advice do you give that person early in their career to start to establish that team? How do they know when it's the right time to do so? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's when you get too busy to to keep up with everything you have to do in a day's time, you know, and you look at your task. So, you know, going back to to the concept of focus, you know, it's time when they get too busy to pay attention to what they're good at. So if they're really good at selling, then bring someone to do the administration, bring someone to do the boarding, to do the applications, you know, tasks like that, you know, order equipment, program equipment, and then they can step back and manage, you know, but that comes with a, a whole different set of issues because right. management, you know, to quote Yogi Barrett, ain't easy, you know, and so, you know, when you when you delegate someone else, you have the responsibility of following up. So it's really simple steps, but stay with what you're good at and and hire people to help you with the administration. You know, and if you really like being an administrator, then you know hire some people to sell for you, and teach them and train them and coach them and hold them accountable for their behaviors. Yeah, and I think there's a. Uh definitely an element of self-awareness there, right? As far as, you know, there's a lot of people I've talked to where they don't even seem to realize what they are good at and what they're not good at. And, and, you know, you kind of have to look at your results a little bit and say, you know, uh, I'm, I'm actually not great at training salespeople or I'm not great at, at actually going out and do it. You know, I talked to a lot of salespeople that are fantastic at closing deals and, and putting solutions together, but they're not good at prospecting. And they just need to hire somebody to, to jump on the phone or go out in the field and, and generate leads for them so that they can follow up and close. I mean, what are your thoughts on like, how do you, as a, as a young leader in a smaller organization and growing, how do you develop that self-awareness to know where you need to hire and where those weaknesses exist? Well, you know, for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's a painful awakening, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they, get, they get slapped in the face with a two by four. And, yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, someone took their customers. They didn't return phone calls. They didn't do the things that they should be doing, primarily because of, again, the lack of focus and not paying attention to their business. So I spent some time in, in the Army, and I learned something very important. What gets inspected gets corrected. And so, mm. you know, it's very important to have metrics in your business and, and manage things by the numbers. You know, how many, how many new prospects did I call today? How many of them said yes? You know, right. How many service problems did I have? Were the service problems caused by my lack of knowledge when I sold the account? You know, what created the service issues? Yeah. You know, how do they understand the competition and who they're selling against? So being aware of your your environment and measuring it through some form of simple metrics, you know, it doesn't have to be a 50-page report. Right. But, you know, the key things that are important to managing a prospect uh, line, you know, managing, you know, the sales flow, the different stages, and, um, you know, making sure that your people get paid on time mm -hmm. and your, your merchants get what they, um, what you told them they were going to get. So yeah. it's just, it, it's, I don't know how to make someone become aware, you know, they kind of have to want to yeah. But the beautiful thing about today is you can outsource training, you can outsource guidance, you can find metric kits all over the internet if you wanted to. Yeah. There are so many tools that are available to someone who wants to learn. Mm -hmm. But but that may be the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they sure. have to want to improve themselves. Yeah. And also the fact that there's so much out there. It's being able to pick the right tools, right? I mean, yeah, yeah there's a, there's information. It's the information age, but it's the information overload age right. as well. Right. <laughs> it, it really is. But wherever you are, there are people in your neighborhood that do what you do, right? Mm -hmm. People in your community. 
And so, you know, start or join the peer group. Yeah, yeah. Ask others. You know, what we do, I I watch so many people cover the information. You know, it's like that Bible school lesson, this little light is mine, I'm going to let it shine, you know, Mm -hmm. not not put it under a bushel. You know, there's real value in sharing and developing perspectives out there. You don't have to tell anybody who your prospect list is or why you're really good at closing certain types of, of merchants but you should be able to learn from others and teach others yourself and, and we, we help everybody grow that way you know? yeah I, I believe that sharing is important i could not agree more so so as as we you know, we could have a whole conversation about that. But we won't go there. So uh, it's just funny. I, I, I literally, I literally just had a conversation with the young guy that uh, was getting into the industry, and this is like a month ago. And he was telling me how he was going to revolutionize the payments industry. Oh you yeah, know, um, <laughs> with his hundred dollars in capital and and hard work. And you know, what's interesting about it is the value that he placed on his ideas. And it's like he wants me to sign an NDA before I can even hear his idea. And it's like. I told him, I said, man, I have seven or eight good ideas in the shower before I even go to work in the morning. <laughs> that doesn't make me any money. I said, you got to be able to execute and you got to have capital. If you can't execute, you don't have capital. Your ideas aren't going to be worth very much. You, you right. got to, you know, so anyway, but OB, what I'd love to hear from you is we talked about focus. So, you know, it's no secret that our industry right now is focusing on, um, you know, certain verticals, certain technology solutions and things like that. But what is your advice to organizations? How do they know when it is time? to expand and to, you know, add revenue to existing clients by looking at other things. Um, You know, what is your advice about, you know, when you say to focus, you know, you don't want to focus forever on only one thing, right? Eventually you're going to scale out a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, if you do focus on one thing forever, then eventually all of your strengths turn into your weaknesses because the world will change. Sure. Right. Right. it evolves and rotates every day. So when the world changes, you have to be able to um, change with it. Or if you spend a lot of time and thought um, of thinking about the future, then there are people who can see around corners you know, and see changes that are coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes from, from being prepared. You know, early on in my career, I read everything that I could get my hands on about payment space. And there weren't as many journals or there weren't blogs, certainly back then. Yeah, and I talked to everybody I could talk to about what their best practices were. I didn't use the term back then, best practices. You know, I asked them, how are you successful? What do you, what do, you do every day? And um, there are books like The Seven Habits of, of Highly Effectual People. Those those things really do help coach and teach you. Learning how to um, to speak, join a Toastmasters club so you're not shy in front of a, an audience or a group. I think people have to, James, and I'll get around to answering your question. They have to invest in themselves, you know, and make sure that they can be the best they can be every day when they go to work, you know. But the the world we live in today is becoming highly specialized, highly, you know, vertically oriented. And how do you how do you invest in the proper tools to help you be successful, you know, in today's world? We used to do at at PaySafe a lot of digital selling, you know, in a large fashion. We sold three to six thousand new accounts a month all using digital marketing and um, mm. inbound calls into a tele-center. Yeah. But all of those accounts were closed by salespeople, building a connection mm. with the merchant. And um, there's still a lot of merchants who want to buy from people yeah, in the sure. marketplace. Mm. And, and that's, that's really important. So you have to focus on, am I going to be a digital marketer? Am I going to pick verticals that are successful? And you do that by by looking around and seeing, wow, there's a lot of nail shops. There are a lot of pool supply stores. There are, right. you know, what, hundreds of verticals that, that people can focus on. Yeah. 
sure. and experiment until you find what what shoe fits for you and what you can wear. If you're a small, if you're a small company, do that. Yeah. And then there are the general mechanics who can sell things to anybody, right? That take care of, of all the businesses. So if you're good at generalized selling, focus on that. You know, take what what comes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. So so I, now I want to transition this conversation a little bit because I do want to to provide some content to those who have a larger, a growing organization. I know this is an area of specialty for you, OB. Uh, so one of the first challenges is a lack of capital. And, you know, this comes as businesses are growing, um, especially, and I, I know this firsthand as the different organizations I run. Um, you know, I'm hiring people. I hired four people, I think, in the last three weeks and full-time salary people. And so uh, we're blessed to be able to sell fund, but a lot of my clients I deal with are not in that situation. And so they say, well, wait a second, you know, in order to really grow, we need to hire all these people or we need to maybe provide free hardware to be competitive with other, you know, companies out there or whatever the case might be. So how should a growing organization view capital? What are your thoughts on, you know, private equity uh, versus, you know, investors and, you know, these various forms of capital that are available for even the SBA now, you know, so give us your thoughts on on raising capital and, and what should be considered. Look, there there are dozens of of people in in the communities we all live in that will help fund businesses to get them started. You have to have some awareness of what the value of your business is or what the future value of it may be, so you don't um, give away too much of the company too early on in your career. I've seen I've seen that happen a lot. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll give you 40% of my business today if you'll lend me, um, you know, $30,000 to grow the business. And they grow the business and all of a sudden, you know, the person who owns 40% of the business is saying, come to mama, bring me some money. Let's, you know, let's reconcile this. And yeah. so you, you have to be careful. But there, there, there are people, you know, CPAs that can give advice to you know, small businesses. Every community I've, I've ever lived in has um, financial planners that can can help businesses. The most important thing is to take your vision that you have and translate it into a business plan. You know, and that business plan will help guide you to the amount of capital you need. And then there are advisors in the local markets that will connect you with the right people that can fund those businesses. But you have to take what's in your head, translate it to a business plan, put it on paper, and then um, have that business plan tested. And I think you have it tested by a professional, by a friend that's in the business, you know, by a lot of people that can provide that advice to them but trying to go it alone in the world we live in today is not a good idea mm-hmm. and, and let's let's dig so into much. let's dig into that business plan for just a second if, if you could so yeah, you know uh the definition of a business plan um i'm actually it's, it's interesting because i feel like 20 years ago when i was getting into business my business plans were very philosophical and very much filled with ideas um now I find that business plans I write are mostly in Excel <laughs> and yeah. they're very much about numbers and quantification and metrics and things of that nature. Obviously the, the probably somewhere in the middle is the right way. So as somebody who makes investments in these companies, what are you looking for in a, in a business plan from an entrepreneur? Well, I want someone who's um, not brighter than the average bear, but I want someone who's, you have to transition from being a really good salesperson to being a really good, um, planner, you know, where you use forethought and, and um, you know, financial um, metrics to help you build your plan. So if I want to sell 10 accounts a day for salespeople, you know, and say I want to have three salespeople, what's the value, the end value of those 10 accounts today? At the end of month one, What's that account worth? Nothing probably because it's negative, you know, in upfront cost to to sell the account. But what's it, what's that account going to be worth six months from now? And so you multiply and you you um, 
compute what the, the value of, of one merchant account is going to be to you and use trends, use average values and say, if I sell 25 merchant accounts that produce $20,000 a month in sales volume, you know, and this is my, you know, earnings per that account, and this is my net income, you know, what do I have left to invest? Or if I want to get there and I have no money, I can use those those calculations to show to an investor that if you will, you know, lend me the thirty thousand dollars to you know get started to hire three salespeople, and if they produce these results, this will be our effort. And then you can show a return on the investment, a return on the capital, and um, everybody should be happy at the end if the numbers are right. But you don't have to you don't have to be an expert in Excel. You know, but you you have to get the the visions of sugar plums and fairies out of your head. You know, <laughs> you know, and um, and and focus on that. I saw I saw a guy that wanted to buy a point of sale company, and you know he's successful in the business and ISO, but his business plan was horrendous. It talked about you know recurring revenue and keeping the existing clients. He didn't talk about growing the portfolio. He didn't cover in his business plan for changes of technology, you know, com competition coming from cloud-based, you know, competitors in the marketplace. So it wasn't a well thought out plan. It just said, I can keep this business and I can keep selling the same way the business is selling today. But when you looked at the numbers, the, the businesses and sales had declined over a period of time. Mm -hmm. The net revenue had declined. And it was because of the challenges that were out there in the marketplace. And so you have to have a plan for how I'm going to, go, in this instance, to convert, you know, an old hard-coded hard software solution to a cloud-based technology because that allows you to be fleet in the marketplace and to be um, current and competitive with with the times. And so there are a lot of, of thoughts that go into the business plan. One is the financials. You know. Two is the is the plan itself. Is it is it well thought out? Is it thoughtful uh, in terms of uh, doability or completion? Can this really get done? You know, yeah. and so you, you, it's not easy work to put it together, but there are a lot of people that can help guide um, young, successful entrepreneurs through this. And golly, we've seen it, haven't we? How many ISOs have we seen grow from one guy selling on the street mm -hmm. to, you know, yeah. having net worths of millions of dollars? Right. I remember meeting Jared Isaacman when he was like, you know, this little, you know, fresh faced college dropout, high school dropout. I mean, he, was, he wasn't more than 20, 21 years old. Look at him now. He's flying into space and and, yeah. and holding a multi-billion dollar um, ISO. Um, but but what you do you remember this about Jared? He always had a vision of where he wanted yes, to Yes, he go. did. Yes, he did. He, he was always focused on that vision and that was very important he knew what he wanted to do mm -hmm. he kept his plans his operations and everything practical yeah um, yeah but he he was a groundbreaker right it was terminals, and and it, even when he even when he did things that, that seemed you know off course they weren't really you know bizarre it wasn't like oh this is gonna you know this is gonna you know fail and and you know fall from the sky like you know like uh you know a plane uh a plane, plane crash or something it was like huh that's something i never thought of <laughs> you know? well, let's see how that plays out think about when he when he started giving away free terminals mm -hmm. on right. the sales systems he created a very sticky merchant environment mm -hmm. people were committed to him they they stayed with him it lowered the merchant's operating cost the mm -hmm. penalties came if they went out of business early or if they left, you know, because they would have to pay for the equipment at that time. But 
he built he built an organization that was based upon a solid vision right and then he executed the basics very well mm -hmm. and that's that's the second part of this if you build a business plan then you have to execute it right and you have to you have to be very tactical in that strategy you know in the implementation of that strategy right. and i see a lot of people fail because they don't stay with their business plan they may run into a wall mm -hmm. instead of trying to figure out how to go over it around it or through it you know they just abandon that's a bad idea let's sell a different way mm -hmm. yeah. so when you implement a plan you you have to carry it through you know and to see and there's a it takes a period of time to test your your theories and your theorem about how you want to run this business yeah and you know, you know, my last question for you, Obi, I'm going to actually change up what I was going to ask you because I think we've already covered um, some of this. But, you know, what I think is so interesting about this, we've talked about metrics a lot. We've talked about making mm -hmm. a plan and then executing your plan. But one of the things I see that there's a bit of confusion, I feel like, um, is which metrics do you track? And, you know, uh, I can't remember which book it is now. There's a book I was reading recently that talked about lead measures and lag measures. But the idea is, you know, a lot of times these business plans include results, and so they say, well, I know I want to generate, my plan is to generate 50,000 a month in residual. Well, that's the outcome of your plan, but your plan is that you're going to prospect X amount, or you're going to hire X number of salespeople and make sure that they're live in the field. I'm just curious your thoughts on how do you hold yourself and your organization accountable to accomplish these results and any tips or thoughts that you would have on kind of just, again, maybe just the way you're thinking about your business to make sure that you're, you know, you're tracking, you don't get, you know, you don't get six months down the road and say, Oh, wow, I'm, I'm way off. I, I had this plan. I'm not even close. How do you keep that from happening? You know, I think it, this is not an, there's not an easy answer to that, but a lot of it is, is the ability to keep your wits about you, you know, not, have concerns, but don't be fearful of your business plan. You know, implement implement it you know, to the best of your ability, and um, keep your keep your eye on the prize, which is really important because that carries back to to focus again. I watch people get distracted, James. With well, I'm going to go get um, a new Ferrari now, or I, I see these guys that are driving. Maseratis and I'm going to get one of those. And how many, how many times have we seen that? When I was working at, at First Data, I had a guy rent a Ferrari to pick me up you know, <laughs> at, at the airport, you know, to try to impress me. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, you're new in this business and you're just starting out. Why would you be driving a Ferrari? This is, you know, five or six salespeople, or you know, it's that yeah. much capital you could devote to to something right. else. Right. So there's plenty, there's plenty of time for the riches to come yeah. you know, down the road. But but stay stay ahead. I, I learned one of my lessons in the army is I learned is even if you're marching in circles, you're always going forward. Right. And so you, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. You have to go, you have to go forward in life. Yeah. And you have to be responsible. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I have to, I have to tell you one story really quick. So I think Obi, you would appreciate this. Uh, so this would have been about um, maybe eight years ago. I was, closing. I hope this is the story I'm thinking of myself. Go ahead. Yeah, so <laughs> about eight years ago, I was closing, uh, I had closed my first deal where a large uh, choir was going to fund my ISO and allow me to hire a staff and, you know, really build something significant, a national ISO. And they, you know, said, Hey, let's go celebrate. And they want to take me to a real nice restaurant, to have dinner in Chicago. So we go out to the parking lot and they said, we'll wait for you at the entrance. So I got in my, uh, you know, eight-year-old blue minivan with a little bit of rust on it mm -hmm. that I'd done my best to, to keep off of there, but I owned it cash and I didn't want to have any debt. And so I pulled around and they were there and there. Uh, one of them had a Range Rover and the other one had a brand new BMW. I pulled up behind them to follow them to the restaurant. And the CEO of the company put his arm out the window and was waving me around. Because he didn't yeah. think it was me. He thought he needed it. So I, I pulled up next to him, rolled the window down, and he, oh, I saw it was me. And anyway, long story short, I was talking to him a few years later after the ice had become very successful, and I had traded in my blue, my blue minivan. And uh, he said, you know, one of the reasons we were so confident in investing with you is we knew you weren't going to waste the money. 
Yeah. You know, you were focused on using the money for the business and and growing the business. And so I think it's interesting. Uh, I agree with you. I see people a lot of times that are just, you know, spending money frivolously on, on personal things as if that's going to impress an investor. That is the worst thing you could do. To, to give. Mm -hmm. The message the investor wants is my money's going to get go to work in your business, not buying you a nicer house or car, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd see businesses that start out, usually they're not in Class A office space. You know, right. they're, they're in a in a corner office in an abandoned mall, you know, mm -hmm. and that shows me that they're frugal, they're smart about their yeah. their money. They understand that every penny you make is hard earned. Mm -hmm. And you know, they do that. And then as you grow, you enjoy the spoils of, of what you do. But if you're focused on a, a new business or growing an existing business, then stay focused on it. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I love time. that story, James, by the way. I, 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 think, I, I, love, I think I told that to you before, Patty. You did, so. yes. I, I love it too. It's it's just a, a, a great story about fortitude and presence and, mm -hmm. you know, your belief in yourself, right? Yeah. 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 Before I know we, we, we really need to wrap this up, but before we go, um, OB, I'd love to just get, get your take on prof professionalism. You know, the, the basic personal and business etiquette, which I think that you exemplify in many ways. Um, but I, I'd love to know your thoughts on how important it is for people coming up in the payment space to maintain a, a reputation of professionalism and to develop a sense of maturity in the way they conduct business. You know, you know how important is this, uh, you know, is etiquette and professionalism in success? Look, I, I think it's very important. But then again, some of your younger listeners may think I'm just a, another <laughs> old, old, you know, guy in, in this space. But, you know, unfortunately, in, in the payment sales environment, we see a lot of bad competition, right? Mm -hmm. We see a lot of people that, you know, aren't scrupulous. You know, they they lie to clients. Or they may be just purely uneducated about their product and they're selling, mm -hmm. and they mislead the merchants and the clients, you know, not on purpose, but eventually they mislead them. So, look, I think there are certain things that you do that are, are very important, which is always know your products, know, know what you're selling, and know it better than your, your competitors, yeah. you know. Get up, come to work on time. Even if you're working out of your house and prospecting, get up, you know, get dressed, you know, uh, try not to multitask at the same time. You know, be polite to people. You know, I'd hate to even say this out loud, but learn table etiquette and mm -hmm. table manners. Sure. So right. when you go out to eat, with someone, you don't embarrass yourself or embarrass them. Um, if you're selling, you know, hiring clients, learn how to pick out a bottle of wine, things, things of that nature that are, are, are very professional alike. But more importantly, dress nice. That doesn't mean a suit or tie. That means, you know, dress better than your your clients. Right. Right. If yeah. you can, no, I. But, uh, but don't lie, you know, and yeah. don't don't mi misrepresent yourself. And it worst of all in a selling environment, it's going to blow up on you. It's going to come back. You may get a deal. Yep. You may you know get a short term prize, but you're going to lose that client over mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. so, I always believe that Patty, from a professional standpoint, you sell on three things: you sell on price, quality. And service right and those are those are the things that that we sell right and the the merchant can always have two of them but you need to keep one right right you know, you know the the dressing part is really it's interesting ob years ago back in the 90s so you know probably close to 25 30 years ago i was putting on conferences and i reached out looking for a credit card account and i remember this guy coming to my to my house because i've always practically always worked out of my home. And I took one look at the guy in the way he was dressed. And it was like, there's no way in hell I'm doing business with this man, you yeah. know, and I'm an old hippie who loves to, you know, lounge around in jeans and, and t-shirts, but it was like, 
the, the, the suit hadn't been cleaned, the tie was done wrong, the shirt was rumpled, and it was like a total, tur- as a customer, that was a total turnoff for me. Yeah. yeah. Today, we, we see kids with, you know, their phones, and I even hold my phone in my hands more than I should. Mm-hmm. But but if you're selling to uh, to someone, put your phone down. Yeah. <laughs> Try to focus on that client. You always want your client to be the center of attention, or right. your prospect to be the center of attention, and you stay focused on them. I love it. I love it. Yeah, we we have a lot of conversations in our house uh, with the kids about the word appropriate. <clears throat> there's appropriate. There's times to be crazy. There's times to uh, uh, you know, to wear the jeans and the t-shirt, and then there's other times, you know. And so I think uh, I love what you're saying, Obi. It's all about the objectives. So, uh, OB, obviously we could talk to you for another two or three hours here, but we won't do that to you today because we know you have other priorities. So, um, let us know how our audience could stay connected with you. Should, where would they go to follow you? Where would they go to maybe learn more about, uh, what you do? Well, um, I don't think I'll regret this. I never have, but look, I'll give them my, my email address. It's just ob.rawls at gmail.com and feel free to reach out to me. You know, I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody. Excuse me. And um, I'm happy to offer guidance. And that's not always, that doesn't mean that it's a fee with that. It just means that if I can help somebody, I will. So reach out to me through email and I'll be happy to, to help. So, Patty, I recently wrote uh, an edition of the Merchant Sales Insight in sponsorship and partnership with NMI, our sponsor. And mm-hmm. I wanted to talk for a minute about this idea of selling large merchants who have their own custom software for their yes. business. I think that's really that's I, I saw the draft of this. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think I was really struck by it. It really just draw, drew me in. I think there's some really actionable insights in here. Well, thank you. Yeah. So well, I started out with a really interesting story, actually. So um, mm-hmm. Jack Christensen, who is my lead developer and my right. business partner, um, right. a, a friend of his uh, who is also a senior developer, Jack and he were having a conversation and his friend works, has one and only one client that, his, that he works with. And it is a large plumbing company right. that uh, basically, you know, gets all these plumbing jobs and then subs them out to all of these um, contractors. Mm-hmm. And they do that through a software solution. So the customer is paying them and then they are distributing these payments to the various uh, you know, people. So this is an extremely large organization doing an enormous amount of processing volume. And they were actually using a legacy ISO, which shall remain nameless. Right. And this developer friend of Jack's was so disgusted by the API and the developer experience of trying to integrate with this legacy provider. Uh He actually convinced this company to move to Stripe at their listed rates. Yes. That's what blows my mind. Unbelievable. (laughs) Negotiate rates. (laughs) No. Um, And, and you know, you wouldn't expect the developer to do that. That's not really the developer's job. Right. But but that idea of just there was so much friction there. Yeah. And so what I talk about in this draft is I talk about this idea that there's this race to the top. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about the race to the bottom. What shocks me is that many large organizations seem to be in a race to the top. And what I mean by that is the question isn't what's the least amount I can pay to process payments. Mm-hmm. The question seems to be how much am I willing to pay to further reduce the friction of the payment process. And and then those are two diametrically opposed ideas when you think about it. They are. They are. So the example I give in the draft is I talk about, imagine an organization, uh, you know, well, let's actually, you know, let's just keep it the one we had, the plumbing company. Imagine if that plumbing company, they have to pay all of these subcontractors that are doing plumbing jobs, Mm -hmm. right? Well, how much would it cost them if they had to cut checks for all of those people? Right. Right. How much would it cost them if they only accepted check or ACH payments from their customers, how inconvenient would that be? How many people would they have to hire on the operations team to be Mm -hmm. able to process all of these checks? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so the idea is they're willing to spend three, three and a half percent of their massive revenue just so that they have Stripe, which is a very smooth solution for their developer to be able to build into. And plugs right in and doesn't need any special coding. 
Well, it actually it actually does need lots of special coding because of their their unique customization of it. Oh, but, okay, okay. But it's going to need a tenth of the. It's going to take a tenth of the effort for the developer right. to to build it with Stripe versus with this legacy provider. So, and this is a developer just, who's commanding, you know, pretty large. Um, this is the developer. This developer is making cheap. good six figure incomes. So right. Yes, so investment. you know, think about how much time one tenth right. of that time versus right. you know, right. So this comes back around to NMI. So the reason we're talking about this is our kind of our commercial for NMI here, our sponsor, is that what this legacy ISO should have done is they should have partnered with NMI mm-hmm. and pointed this developer to the NMI API. Right. And instead of saying, well, we can't do that because NMI is going to charge a little bit of an extra transaction fee or they're going to charge an extra monthly fee. Well, this this company ended up going to Stripe. They probably are paying 60 basis points higher than what the legacy ISO was charging them. Mm-hmm. And the legacy ISO could have easily passed on the cost of or absorbed the cost of NMI. But if they would have given the developer a true technology solution to integrate with their system, mm-hmm. that developer would have been very happy with that solution. So the point we're making here is, number one, large companies who have their own custom software who do 50 million a month, 10 million a month, whatever it is in processing volume, they are not looking for the cheapest rate. Right. Well, if they have any kind of software, custom software, they're looking for the smoothest integration and the way to reduce as much friction from the entire ecosystem that they're dealing with in terms of payment processing. Right, right. You can provide that to them through NMI. So think about your relationship with NMI and developing that And then think about your ability to go prospect massive companies Mm -hmm. who are using custom software to run their business, who would be more than happy to reduce their payment cost a bit from Stripe, right? Right, If they knew that there was an API that was full feature enough that they could build into and and again, not have that friction or maybe even improve their their development um, of their uh, payment integration. So all that to say, if you want to go after big merchant accounts with custom software, check out NMI.com. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So James, um, efforts to legislate credit card routing Yes. Um, on the back of defense spending bill have been quashed. For the time being. For the time, and that's because by no means is this the last legislative salvo we can expect. Um, just to sort of recap for our audience, the Credit Card Competition Act uh, yep. would create card routing mandates. More to the point, it would require banks with over $100 billion in assets to pro- provide merchants with a choice of at least two unaffiliated networks to process their card payments. Only one of which could be a master could be Visa or MasterCard. Right. Frankly, I got to tell you, I don't get the the purpose of the asset floor except to maybe for you know to make it look like it's fair because you know merchants have no way of knowing in advance whether they're going to get cards from a big bank or a, or a small bank, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going right. to have to be provided a choice no matter what. So the yeah. legislation that was crafted by uh, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin and Republican uh, Roger Marshall was offered as an amendment to a pending defense authorization bill, but that plan was scrapped uh, when the two couldn't muster enough support from the respective caucuses to proceed. But according to most lobbyists, a similar move can be expected later this fall. Right, right. So Now, in the meantime, several constituencies are ramping up efforts to 86 to the proposal. Trade groups like the Independent Community Bankers Association, they've set up this, this website with outreach to Congress campaigns, you know, um, you know, tell your congressman why this is bad. Not just tell your congressman that it is bad, but tell your congressman why it is bad. Yep. And the Electronic Payments Coalition, which is a Washington-based lobbying group that includes banking groups like the ICBA, as well as the card brands, has a campaign that is put, put on called Hands Off My Rewards, which I think is really potentially... Um, a really good campaign um, has all kinds of resources that consumers can be provided with for weighing in on the debate with their congressman. And I think the consumer angle is going to be important. Consumer slash small business angle. And, uh, you know, kudos to the EPC for coming up with the campaign. You know, I've been waiting 
for, for several years now for the banking and payment sector to take on retailers with a catchy phrase that can meet or exceed the, the appeal of swipe fees. Right. Yeah, and definitely, I, definitely rewards would be that hot button. I think rewards can be that hot button. Maybe not by itself, but I think it's a start. Um, I would recommend people check out. Um, it's called the website is called handsoffmyrewards.com. Pretty easy to remember. There's a video in there, which uh, it's about a two minute video meant to explain how card routing goes on and how merchant routing choice costs consumers. Now, looking at it, there's some real easy snippets. Like if you have a local, we're at a local um, market. There's some real snippets in there. You could take off and make 30 minute commercials out of it, 30 second commercials out of it. Yeah. yeah. Very catchy. And uh, the, the, the tagline is don't let retailers rig the system and take away your card benefits. Mm. Um, and I thought it was really interesting just today, um, October 19th, we're recording this uh, particular podcast. Uh, there was an article in Yahoo Finance that clearly draws on this website because the headline is, is Congress going to kill credit card rewards? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the kind of stuff I think that needs to be you know, put out there. I think EB, uh, EPC has made a good first start. Yeah. I know the small ISOs and agents can't do this, but you know there are some ISOs out there with the cl- local clout and, and financial resources that they could start involved in. Sure. Involved in this. Because if we don't, yep. you know, it's just going to come back and bite you in the butt. Yeah. You know, so Patty, this is, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up. I know I'm not doing a questions in the field today, so I can, I can, uh, you can we can elaborate this on this a, a little more. Yeah, sure. So I actually spent the morning thinking about this mm-hmm. as I do often. I mm-hmm. take time to think. Uh, that's what I get paid to do actually. That's so, right. Um, and you know, uh, after uh, what I did, I actually typed up a LinkedIn post about this. So if you want to go read it, knock yourself out. But this LinkedIn post, I could have typed it in probably five minutes, but it probably took me two hours. The reason it took me two hours is that I typed it about 17 times. Mm -hmm. Because each time I typed it out, I would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not going to work. And then I would start over again. And so I came up with a very interesting thing here that I, we haven't talked about yet, Patty. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. This proposed regulation is designed to create competition for Visa and MasterCard, mm-hmm. right? Well, Visa and MasterCard do not collect interchange fees. No. So the fact that we would have an unaffiliated network that would say, well, we're not going to charge a 14 basis point assessment like Visa. We're going to charge 10. Mm-hmm. Big whoop. We just saved four basis points. We up- uprooted the industry for that. So right. I started thinking about this. And I said, so wait a minute. The, the actual objective here is to create competition with interchange rates. But how do you do that? And the conclusion I came to is that, in my personal opinion, and after reading over the law again several times and thinking about it some more and writing about it a bunch, I actually see no way in which this regulation, if passed, would in any way provide competition in interchange fees. No, I don't think it would. I think, if anything, it's just... I, I, I honestly believe it's, it would just be a windfall. For, it's, it's sort of like a handoff of money to big retailers. But, but think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. Even that, even that, I mean, how exactly would it? And, and the, reason I, the reason I say that is the, even the big retailers, say Walmart, right? Right. When you look at Walmart's cost of card acceptance, we have this tiny portion that's the car brand fees. We have a much larger portion that is the interchange. Well, the interchange fees are directly tied to the bank that issued the consumer benefit, not just the card, but the consumer benefit. So in other words, somebody has to give this consumer these benefits. Mm -hmm. Well, there's absolutely no possible way I could come up with to where, well, I did come up with one way I'll explain, but there's no reasonable way I come up with where you could have two issuing banks that are competing for the same transaction. Right. True. Because True. the bank that issued the card, because they are also the bank that is providing the consumer benefit, mm-hmm. they have to be the bank that gets the interchange revenue. Right. I mean, there's no way around that. Right. Right. So an additional card network that would do what exactly? I mean, they're going to go to the banks and say, we want to compete to get your business versus Visa. 
And we're going to do that by lowering your by interchange you revenue? Like, yeah, by giving you less revenue? Why would I do that? No. I mean, it's like competition in that way would actually raise interchange. That's not going to accomplish anything. Right. So the, the only possible scenario I could even think of where any way of, of regulating competition could increase um, interchange fees would be if there was, you know, some sort of well-defined, like predefined definition of consumer card reward programs. Okay. Where, okay, this transaction is coming from one of, you know, coming from card, you know, card type XYZ. And these mm -hmm. card types get this interest rate, this cashback reward, da, 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 da. Right. And then issuing banks can bid on that transaction to get the interchange revenue in order to provide the benefits. But even that is so unreasonable because how on earth would that work where these right. issuing banks would, how would they know, how would the consumer have any idea who they're, are they now dealing with Wells Fargo? Or are they dealing with right. Capital One? Who are they dealing with? Right. So basically what I found in, in thinking about this more Mm -hmm. is that there is no feasible way that you can get issuing banks to compete with each other in any way other than what they're doing now. What they're doing now, right. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that you could do is you could force Visa and MasterCard to allow unaffiliated networks to serve as the kind of uh, wiring or glue that's holding this transaction together to authorize it and perform other network functions. But that network is going to have to work through the exact same issuing banks with the exact same interchange rates. And with the exact same technology requirements. Right. Which is money. Yeah. Right? So the only thing that's actually up for grabs are the fees that are actually collected by the card brands, which are frankly very, very minimal. minimal. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just, and so my, my, what I came away from all of this was, you know, this is something where the government needs to do one of two things. Either, number one, they need to actually regulate interchange as they did with the debit card networks. I mean, we've already seen as you just, you know, the the, the right. routing and all that is not working out with the debit networks anyway. No, no of course they, not. They either need to come in and say, we're going to regulate interchange. Now, I don't think they should do that, but I'm saying if the government's going to do anything, that is the only reasonable thing they can do to reduce the cost of card acceptance in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Or they need to take their paws off of it and realize that they are not going to have a measurable impact other than dramatically increasing the chaos in an actually very well-defined, mature, and efficient market system. I think, you know, to me, the biggest problem about this is that, and, and you and I, you know, we've been in this business long enough to know that nobody really understands this business unless they're in it, right? Yes. I mean, you know, we all try to explain it to our family and they, you know, scratch right. their heads and, right. you know. But the biggest issue here is that Congress has no comprehension of how the business is run. And, right. and they're getting sort of like these, these mixed messages from the various parties and whoever it kind of reminds me of the dinner table when I was growing up, whoever could speak the loudest got hurt. <laughs> right? Right. And, and, you know, the retailers yeah. have been speaking really loud. And that's why I think it is so important for our industry to to turn up the volume on this and yeah. not just, you know, scream and, and carry on, but to actually explain to the people that are writing these laws, why the laws yeah. are not, are not well, practical. And you know, the, the thing I came away from with Patty, honestly, is I really truly at this point believe that Dick Durbin doesn't even understand the implications of what he's trying to pass. I agree. I agree. That's what I'm saying. I, I really, I, I really believe that he thinks he's regulating interchange. I think he does. And he's not. And he's not. And the people who are advising him do not understand what's going on. Yeah. And so anyway, so I just had to throw that out there as well, dude, kind Thank of you. back on top of what you're saying, because it's, it's, I was kind of like, in, in retrospect, thinking about it, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't even regulating interchange. This is regulating Visa and MasterCard. And, and everybody thinks that they get the interchange outside well, of our industry, but they don't. Yeah. Yeah. They and it's like, it. Even in even conversations we've had in our within the industry, you know, I remember some conversations I've had in the last few yeah. weeks where people were like, oh, you know, this is like regulating Visa and MasterCard. It's a hundred billion dollars. So it's only Visa and MasterCard. And I'm like, no, no, we're talking about a hundred billion dollars for the bank. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, it's well, not it, really they think they're regulating the networks, but they're not really the regulated, as you say, the regulated. Well, well so so to clarify that. I believe 
there, they they are actually regulating the networks because if you look at it, it actually doesn't specifically just say the banks. It's talking about uh, acquiring. Well, I agree. Networks, I mean, it is it, right. It's, but it's, like, it's, it's all it's all institutions that have over a hundred billion in assets that are involved in routing transactions and their reg and their and their um, relationship with the networks. Right, right. But it's it's uh, yeah. I'm gonna be very interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, I am might. too. And you know, I, like I said, I I think this uh, you know hands off my rewards idea might be a yeah, great might be a way, good way to, to yeah. Cool. Good yeah. stuff, Patty. Well, thanks for thanks. bringing that to our attention. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.